This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Okay, everybody, welcome into another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Bill Bartholomew here with you, as I am for new episodes every Tuesday and Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, ripodcast.com, or wherever you like to listen. Of course, right there, you can find the back catalog of over 300 episodes waiting just for you right now. And today, look, we're going to go over something that is reflective of the experience that we've had over the last year and change during COVID-19, and that is dealing with the grief that comes at so many different levels, in so many different layers, um, in so many different situations as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, look, we've all been through a lot together, Um, obviously as a species, as a planet, as a nation, as a state, and here in this community, the listeners of this podcast, you know, we have been through a whole lot together over the last year and change, and it has been, you know, an experience that I don't think any of us expected, and the day-to-day up and down and, and uncertainty of it has taken a great deal of the wind out of our collective sails, right? I mean, let's be honest about it. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And whether you're talking about the loss of a loved one or a friend, the loss of time, the loss of an experience, there's a lot that is associated with this past year and a half. Um, Many of you have shared with me specific examples of this throughout the course of the pandemic. Some of you, I know a lot of you, and thank you so much to all of you out there who work in any version of the healthcare field, whether you're a medical doctor, a CNA, paramedic, whatever, and the post-traumatic stress of the experience of navigating COVID-19. All of this leads to a challenge that we're going to face going forward, which is how do we process all of this and how do we deal with it? How do we grieve for something that has been the central storyline of our lives and has dominated so much of our attention and mental health for the last, again, I don't know what you'd even want to call it. I guess year and change, right? I mean, it's it, it seems like it's been an eternity. At the same time, in some ways, you can kind of flash back to pre-COVID, February of last year, and, and sort of snap back into place. But even if you were able to do that, you'd still be carrying with you the experience, the trauma, and the impact of COVID-19 one way or another. Again, there are so many different layers to this. And that's exactly what we discuss with Deanna Upchurch, who is the Director of Clinical Outreach Services at Hope Health here in Rhode Island. The different layers of it, not minimizing different versions of uh, grief and experience based on COVID-19. So this is this is an important episode. I'm very glad that we're able to do this. And I'd love to hear from you confidentially, whatever you'd like. You can email me, bill at ripodcast.com. And if you want to be out public facing, of course, you can always tweet at me at Bill Bartholomew. Curious about your experiences, maybe after you hear this episode today, you know, kind of what you're doing to sort of process all of this, process this for your family, your friends, your coworkers, your projects, um, whatever it may be, because I think we're going to circle back on this topic. I know we're going to circle back on this topic later in the summer and just kind of revisit. I'd love to get some of your own experiences into the mix here, the very specifics thereof, and kind of figure out, you know, how are we going to work our way through this? I mean, everyone talks about the economics of this, and believe me, that's important, and that's vital to mental health as well. I mean, we we don't want to see the entire world collapse, obviously. Um, 
and 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 there are so many issues that we have in terms of recovery that it's it's almost impossible to sit here and and list them off. But you got to remember to take care of yourself and take care of the people around you, because at the end of the day, this was a traumatic experience, taxing, and it's not over yet. We look at the world, we look at the global picture, particularly in the global south right now, and we're not out of the woods yet. Don't make any mistake about that either. But I do think we're certainly at a point here where going into the summer, we can now start to assess on a hyper-local level, right, what we're going to do to pick each other up as we move forward. So without further ado, let's get to it. Deanna Upchurch, again, with Hope Health right here in Rhode Island, and um, let me know what you think. Very curious on this one. I'm Deanna Upchurch. I'm the Director of Clinical Outreach Services with Hope Health. So, you know, this is an interesting moment because I think anybody who's being remotely honest with himself would have to admit that to varying degrees, COVID-19 has played uh, tricks on our mental health. It has impacted our mental health. It has tested us and it has exposed a lot of um, what is underlying. And it's nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed of, obviously, or anything like that. But when it comes to managing the grief that is associated with COVID-19, the loss of time, most importantly, the, importantly, the loss of life, and just sort of assessing the vulnerabilities of our society that we've, we've all come to, I think that we may have as a whole, and I can't speak for everybody in the listening audience, of course, but I think we all have realized that we need to have better tools in our own toolkit to deal with this type of grief and, and such a widespread impact of something. So that's sort of where we're going to go today with this conversation. And I guess first and foremost, how can somebody assess the last year and change and make any sense of it? Not really talking in spiritual senses, but make any sense of it just in a practical day-to-day reality sense of it. It's so interesting, Bill. Um, When COVID-19 first kind of surfaced, I think the grief support team that I work with and myself, we started almost labeling it as this is, this is grief. People are going to experience collective grief, but there wasn't anything out in the media yet that was kind of calling it that, you know, but I think having worked in this field for quite some time, we were seeing all the same elements that you do or similar elements, I should say of, of somebody that's had the loss of someone that they love. And I realized that the losses through COVID-19 have been many deaths, but also many other things that have taken place to elicit a grief response. Um, and then once we started seeing kind of popping up in different articles nationwide and on you know different uh, news broadcasts, it was being described as a as a grief response. And so you know our our team kind of went, aha, yes, this is is precisely what we were feeling. So I think at some level, we felt somewhat equipped to know not how to deal with a pandemic, but how to deal with the way people were feeling because with the result of it. Because it has knocked the wind out of everybody at different levels, um, depending on what they've had to deal with, whether it's direct loss of a, of a person um, in their life or just all the many other losses that have come, you know, with this situation in the past year. Yeah. So, and, oh, go ahead, please. I, know, uh, I was just going to say it's, you know, um, I think it's responding the way we would respond 
to someone who's had a loss and go from there, because even that is varying in many ways. Yes. And it's varying in the sense that, look, I mean, there's kids who last year, they didn't get to have a proper graduation um, in in terms of high school and, and college. There's people who lost um, a season of sports or something like that. And I mean, when you compare that to what's going on in the world as a whole, um, it's very minor and it doesn't, it, it, it somewhat in, in, in context doesn't even deserve attention compared to loss of life or, or the breakdown of some of our, or the exposure of breakdown in our healthcare system and so forth. But at the same time, that definitely does impact individuals who are going to now have to manage that sadness and that grief as they move forward and try to reconcile the fact that, Hey, look, you know, a portion of my life has been, uh, disrupted in a way that I had no control over. Right. And did not anticipate at all. Yeah. Right. So like you're saying, and I can relate to the, the sports thing. I had, a um, my son was to graduate high school last year. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it was right in that, in that, you know, um, that group of people. Um, and, and I think it's relative. So what we usually tell people who are grieving and when we even host like a grief support group, try not to compare and contrast the grief. And I think that really applies here with COVID-19, right? We can all absolutely say that, you know, if we want to say that the, the worst losses, of course, are all these many lives that have been lost, but not to kind of minimize someone's grief when it is those other, when it can be those other things. You know, we have people that have had to postpone major milestones, um, you know, graduations, weddings, um, you know, all kinds of of major things that have happened. And then we've also had the inability to pay respects to those that we have lost. Yeah. Um, So, you know, funerals couldn't happen and, and being postponed and not even being able to to go for a cup of coffee with a friend after the loss of someone and to try to just have a conversation. Um, all of those things were, went missing. And so I really have tried to encourage people not to compare their losses because this has been lost for everyone at one level or another. Yeah. That is so, that is so insightful and so smart. And, uh, the nursing home matter as well. I mean, what a scene and what a, what a devastating situation. I mean, there were some really horrible stories of people. There was one story in particular that really touched me of a guy whose wife was terminally ill and he, you know, they'd been together for whatever, 50 years, something like that. And he wasn't even able to see his wife. And and fortunately there was some sort of provision or modification to the, the COVID restrictions that allowed him to see her one time before she passed away. But, you know, that just trying to wrap your head around the loss of a parent, of a spouse in any context. And, knowing that that person was alone at the time of their death or perhaps dealing with, you know, someone who was in a moon suit and really removed from human contact. I mean, that is, that's crazy to try to deal with that and and process that and move forward. And you've got to be a special person to be able to dig in and just tough that out, quote unquote, there's no formula for it. I agree. Our healthcare workers have been just unbelievable. And in oh, yeah. healthcare workers, I mean, you know, mentioning the entire system of, of what it takes to, to, you know, support this entire pandemic and the people that have been affected, you know, I did a presentation um, earlier on in the pandemic, probably around May and, and it's um, about the cumulative losses that people experienced during COVID-19. And this was particularly directed for um, long-term care um, facilities, assisted livings, and the people that work there, 
Um, and a very poignant statement was made and it stuck with me since last year. And it was uh, one of the people that participated said, you know, I feel like the, these losses are being minimized because of the age of these people. Mm. And so that was really tough. And, and to kind of really, I think, drive it home for everyone. She said, these people that have died in the last few months, they were on a bus trip to the casino in January of this year. You know, these were people who still had a livelihood and socialized and were out and enjoying themselves, even though they were in a long-term care situation. It did not mean that their death was anticipated in any way. So here you are dealing with a sudden onset of loss that was completely unexpected, regardless of someone's age or or where they're, they were living. <laughs> yeah, You know, that struck everyone. It really did. And it's like, what a sick position that has been taken as well of, oh, well, uh, this person, you know, they, they were in their eighties or, oh, this person, you know, they, they were, they were, they had X comorbidities. So yeah, COVID-19 took them, but you know, that's just, that's just how it's going to be. It's not taking quote unquote healthy, uh, middle-aged or younger people. I mean, the, the, the minimization of of lives. And, and that continues now with people who would say, well, what's going on in uh, India or Brazil, you know, or soon to be probably other parts of the global South. Um, you know, well, you know, here in the U S you know, we've, our lives are being protected like this, this ranking of value of lives. I mean, what a, what a messy and horrible way to go about the world. It is, it is. And, and so here's what I usually will say to something like that is Regardless of the age of a person at death, even pre-COVID-19, how you measure how difficult a loss can be is your relationship with that person. Mm. And so, you know, I've met with people who their most difficult loss was the loss of their 98-year-old mother because that was the most important relationship in their life ever. And so for us to discount any type of loss, you know, due to age or comorbidities really doesn't make a lot of sense because... If we remove the fact that, you know, the patient is of that certain age, the grief is still being held by those here left behind. Yes. So minimization really um, is is not an area that, you know, I think is, well, first of all, it shouldn't happen, but it also, it doesn't benefit anyone to take that stance. I think we need to realize that the value of life, regardless of age or, or, you know, level of health <laughs> is, is it's completely irrelevant. Yeah. These are losses and people are hurting. People are in pain. All right, folks, this is getting real. The time for talk is over from iron workers to engineers, business owners to biology teachers, Rhode Islanders believe in the power of offshore wind together. We're cleaning the air and creating jobs right here at home. Our goal of 100% renewables by 2030 is in sight and the future is bright, with Rhode Island a real leader in America's emerging offshore wind industry. So what makes you a Revolution Wind believer? Join us at revolution-wind.com slash it's real. That's revolution-wind.com slash it's real. Let's go. If you're planning to get a COVID-19 vaccine, there are three ways to make that happen in Rhode Island. You can choose a state-run vaccination site, a regional or community-based clinic, or certain pharmacy locations. To learn more about all of these options, start at c19vaccineri.org. There, you'll find all the information and links you need to make a decision and to schedule an appointment. 
That's c19vaccineri.org. There's also the post-traumatic stress that will come to anybody who's dealt with this, but of particular note would be those who are in healthcare, medical doctors, nurses, EMTs, firefighters, certified nursing assistants, anybody who is involved in the medical core, um, the volunteer core, um, anybody who's had to respond to this. And, and th- that is something that is going to be, um, we, we often hear of COVID as a war-like environment. We have to treat these people who have been exposed to the front lines of this war the way that we would anybody who's been in any type of conflict scenario. How does how do we manage that going forward? Um, you know, I, I think we need to anticipate that this is going to be with us for a long time. You know, you're getting a PSD kind of um, vision of what's happening, and, and I tend to agree. Um, and, and what is important to remember about that is it's hard for people to accept support when they're still fighting the war, right? Because they're still in it. They're still in the trenches. It may not be to the extent that it was, you know, last year at this time and forward, but it's still there. And, and in other parts of the world, it is at the height of, of, of the pandemic for them. But I think we need to be really cognizant of our professional caregivers in the healthcare area. Um, you know, support, there was one way to support them, I think, last year, and it's different this year. You know, last year, my friends and, and family that are in the healthcare um, arena, it would be, you know, dropping off food so they didn't have to cook when they got home, make sure they got enough sleep, just helping with all those basic daily living things as much as you could to support anybody that you knew that worked in that field, right? Um, now, I think we're a little bit more away from it being as intense as it was at one point, although it still exists. And I think now we need to be ready for those feelings that the people in healthcare may now be slightly ready to talk a little more about and kind of process, right? But hard to process when they were in the thick of everything. Um, Our organization at Hope Health, we have offered since last year a professional caregiver support group that any of the healthcare workers could attend. It is on Zoom, as everything is. And we try to make it at the beginning of, of a work day, 8 a.m. on Monday mornings, or at the in the evening on a Wednesday at 8 p.m. We had very little participation in those groups all through last year. We're just starting to see some participation now because people, are, I think, are starting to say, wow, you know, I'm really, this is still weighing really heavy on the heart. And even though it's calmed down, the emotions are really starting to bubble up. So I think we need to be prepared as a society to hear people express their emotions when they are ready. And that's a difficult part of the grief experience as well, right? People aren't always ready to talk about it or right away. And it doesn't have to mean talking with a counselor. It could be walking through the woods with a friend talking about it, you know, um, any of those things. But we need to be ready and know that this is not something that's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, this is this is part of a, a probably a decade long mm-hmm. process at minimum, and yeah, there's no fixed timeline for anybody, and um, it's just a it's wild. What, what what about anybody who is having grief or or self embarrassment or reflecting that they didn't take this seriously, that they themselves got sick, that someone that they know got sick. Um, and now they're looking back on it and going, gosh, you know, I, I, 
I'm skeptical that we ever landed on the moon or something like that. And so I applied that sort of line of thinking to dealing with the pandemic. And now they're reflecting and saying, geez, you know, um, I'm having a hard time coming to, to grips with this. What should someone like that do? I think that's a hard place to be. I yeah. think it's, you know, it, it, it's going to come along with probably some guilt and some, you know, really difficult emotions to process with that. Um, but I do believe that being human beings, that hopefully we all have a willingness to learn and to understand and to grow from an experience. And I'm hoping if that's happened for anyone out there that, you know, they're able to kind of reflect and move forward and maybe even help to educate those around them. You know, that would be a piece I would think that could help kind of help a person maybe reconcile with, you know, maybe the way they once looked at this and and how they could move forward um, from that experience. That's a tough area to be. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And, and I know some people who are in that, that category and, and it's, it is a mentally draining space to be in. It's, there's no doubt about it. As we, as a state start to, to move forward and start to think about what comes next in terms of everything, our workforce and how we're going to look if we're going to be on Zoom or part, part-time Zoom, part-time in-person, all that business. Where, where do people go when they are removed from colleagues and friends, not necessarily because of the pandemic, but because of the new infrastructure of society that we, and again, this may not end up happening, but I, I get the sense that we'll probably be more remote and more distant for at least some time how do we get back to that connectivity? That's a good question. Um, so I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little bit to kind yep. of at the beginning of the pandemic and looking at what our team did at Hope Health. Um, it wasn't a question of, um, you know, do we continue to support people in grief? It was, how are we going to do that? And so, you know, we quickly went to the Zoom platform, which I know people are probably pretty tired of now, but we really did transform a lot of what we did as far as offering support for people. And our organization offers support to anyone in the community that is suffering a loss. It doesn't just have to be a loss through hospice or through Hope Health. Um, you know, our, our support groups are offered to people in the community, our special events like our Camp Braveheart program for children, same with our Weekend of Hope and Healing adults um, for a weekend retreat. We migrated all of those events to a virtual platform. And I thought, you know, having been in this field for 20 years, I thought this is going to be a Band-Aid because it's going to be a short-term thing and we're going to have to do this short-term and it's just it's just for now, right? And here we are 15 months later. Um, but I will say, as much as people can be tired of Zoom, um, some of the people I know, many of the people I know are only utilizing it for things like support groups. Mm. Um, and the virtual support groups that are out there have been incredible. I mean, our attendance at our support groups has grown considerably. Um, everything that we do um, from a grief support standpoint at Hope Health, the utilization of grief support services increased by 94% in the last year. So people are just really, I think they're participating in what is available, right? So if you take away certain options, then it's what's available and what can I do? And that's where we try to to lead people is not, let's not look at what we can't do, but let's look at what can we do given the circumstance and, and bring them to that point. So our counselors were seeing people through Zoom one-on-one, uh, -on -one, but definitely more frequently. We had people who had previous losses who felt that they had been doing better, who kind of, you know, backtracked a little bit. It was very difficult to be so isolated during this time. Um, so that garnered the, the need for more grief support as well. Um, but all in all, there, there are, there is support out there. 
and, and virtually. I do think going forward, it may be hybrid. Um, at some point, people have an option to go in person or or you know virtually, but I think that's going to be a little while yet um, across the board. You know, not just I think no matter where you are, that it's going to be a slow rollout to make sure people remain safe. Um, and some people prefer Zoom and they prefer virtual. So I think some people will just stay there and say, "I'm more comfortable here. I don't have to go to the office and find a parking spot." <laughs> yeah. Um, and for some people, the, I have found people actually showed more emotion. On Zoom, I think there's a little bit of comfortability knowing that you're not necessarily right near someone physically and that the, the emotion, you know, you could you could shut off your camera for a minute if they felt that they wanted to do that. Or I think people have just shown more comfortability in showing emotion on the virtual platform, which was not anticipated. Yeah, that's interesting. And I agree. I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, but it's hard to imagine, you know, the 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 being in an office environment five days a week, nine to five. I mean, let's face it. I mean, a, a lot of that time is is spent reading things unrelated to work, small talk, this, that, and the other. And it'll be fascinating to measure productivity in, in the remote or hybrid setting versus in office where burnout can happen by 1.05 p.m. on Tuesday very easily. Whereas in this this context, you have a chance to deal with your emotions, to deal with the fact that I need to take a break right now and eat lunch and go for a walk and then crush the project in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. That'll all help people, I would assume, kind of reconcile with the moment um, if they're able to ease back in or remain in a, a remote setting and, and um, you know, just sort of deal with themselves and be more natural. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it gives <laughs> people the opportunity to, to take that pause that's needed during the day right? The little bit of the deep breath yeah. um, in between things, which doesn't always happen. I think people have learned at some level to be able to do that. And of course, I'm talking not about people in healthcare who are so busy and so inundated, but everybody else, you know, has been able to have a little bit of, a, and may, some may not like it, but a little more of a breathing room. I, I saw an interesting thing yesterday online and it, it compared uh, European societies, if you receive an email, the reply email might say something. Did you see that? Might say I saw something. the out of office. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out of office. Reach me back in September. And the other one, an American reply was, um, you know, I'm going to have a, a, a kidney transplant, but you know, you can call me in between the hours of 10 and 12. Yeah. And it exactly. was interesting to show the work, the difference in how we look at the way we don't take the time to, to breathe. <laughs> really Definitely. that is much needed and has become more needed in this in this past year. Yeah, you look at South America or 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 many Latino countries with lunch is, you know, at the entire family, uncles, cousins, everybody, I mean from like 11 to 1:30, like mm-hmm. courts are closed, like things everyone goes home and they have that time and they eat right. and then they rest after and chat and then go back to work and it's you know, you can make arguments about, oh, compare the GDP and this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, what are we living for? Right. Right. Absolutely. Last question. Oh, mm-hmm. l- last question. Um, you know, there's no question about it that, tra- that trauma when you're, even if you're less than a year old or in your, you're a toddler or whatever it may be, if you're a, a young person that may not be able to wrap your head around what's going on right now, the trauma that you ex- are experiencing that you're, feeling through the world right now, the energy in the world and where it's been, you are going to carry that with you and it's going to surface at some point in your life. 
So for parents out there or anybody who comes into close contact with um, the youngest of our population, what strategies can they deploy going forward to try to make sure that that trauma isn't just left to, uh, to, to, to stew inside somebody deep down and then surface in an unexpected way down the line? Really let people who don't even understand what's happening right now um, right. deal with this grief. Um, first of all, it's being on alert. It's not, again, not minimizing the, you know, emotions and behaviors that come even from our youngest, um, you know, in our society to be able to know how to respond to a sense of anxiety. I think that is kind of pervasive for not only children, but adults right now. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think there are different frames of thought on this and that people say, well, you know, we can get through things and we've gotten through other things, but this is a very unique and very different circumstances, you know, for anyone and particularly young people saying, you know, that are one day going to say, I grew up in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I think for parents, you know, being on the alert of, of recognizing changes in, in their, in their children, you know, they went from being home, being in school to being at home now back to school, people are wearing masks. It's just really so unbelievable to watch the resilience of so many of these children and what they have been through. And I think we can't, um, you know, undervalue the resilience that they have shown, you know, cause we're saying, okay, you know, they're moving on, they're getting through it, but anything like this, it, as you said, as you said, it can bubble up a little bit, you know, later on. Um, I think just kind of making it an open discussion, what kind of things worry you, you know, it, rather than dismissing it you know, letting the conversation continue to happen. And and I think all of our young people going forward are going to have a sense of knowing that you can not predict what can happen in your future, right? They're going to have that sense of unexplained things can pop up. And certainly when you have that as a baseline, that can create some level of anxiety. Um, going into the, the rest of your life saying, hey, what might pop up next? <laughs> you know, what what could, it, it's very disturbing. It, it, it can be very difficult. So for parents, I think we need to be in tune with our kids. I think we need to bring up the conversation of, you know, what what worries them and find out rather than, you know, just finding out other ways and it exhibits itself in behaviors that we did not anticipate. So have the conversation continuously if possible. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.